Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Stand with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was the one who <laughs> caused the growth. There we go. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. You may be seated. We are continuing our study through this book of 1 Corinthians. And I just wanted to set the scene, set a little context if you've missed the last few weeks. But while the Apostle Paul was on his second missionary journey, um, he brought the powerful message of the gospel to the city of Corinth. Now, Corinth in Paul's day was one of, if not the most, wealthiest cities in Greece. It was a very prominent city in all of the Roman Empire. It was a major multicultural urban center. Some in today's language would call it a very progressive city. It was, it was a melting pot of different cultures and backgrounds and ways of life. And one commentator likens Corinth to being the New York or the Los Angeles or even the Las Vegas of the ancient world. And so Paul, he goes there on his second missionary journey. He preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. People get saved. They get filled with the Holy Spirit. A church is established. Church has been planted. We know he stays there roughly a year and a half simply just pastors the people, continues to teach and preach and just care for the people, making disciples. And then after his stay of roughly, again, a year and a half, he then leaves Corinth. He continues to preach the gospel, plant churches where we know he lands in Ephesus to do just that. But while he was in Ephesus, he received news from Corinth. And they were reporting to Paul about the condition of the church that he had planted some three, maybe even five years before. But the report was not good. It seemed that at some point the church had not stayed the course at some point after Paul's departure, they had taken their eyes off of Jesus and the wonderful news of the gospel that we treasure. And instead of moving forward and growing as disciples, they had moved backwards. 
And as Pastor Doug has said, the pagan culture that they were living in had a greater influence on them than they had on the culture, and it was affecting the whole church. The whole church was affected by it. And listen, any time the world, the sins of the world, the attraction of the world has a greater influence in your life and in my life than we have on the world, we're in serious trouble. And that's where this church is at. They're in trouble. Paul gets this devastating news. And if you can just imagine as the founding pastor of this church that he had planted and shepherded, he shared the gospel with these people. He led them to the Lord. He is part of building them up and discipling them in their early days of salvation. He gets the word of some distressing things that were happening in the church, but most notable about divisions that were taking place in the body of Christ. They were a church that had become divided. And that's why we have 1 Corinthians. It's a letter from the founding pastor to a church that has found itself in trouble. A church that has lost its way. They've gone off course and now they've been caught up in the temptations of this world. And again, instead of just growing and maturing as disciples and followers of Jesus. I always like to use the word apprentice. It's helpful when I think of the term disciple. But instead of growing in that, they had digressed. They digressed under the influence and the pressures of the culture. That they, again, they had lost their focus. They had taken their eyes off of Jesus. And because of that, anytime you take your eyes off of Jesus, you grow carnal. You grow carnal in your thinking and in your actions. And this is what has happened to this church. They've abandoned even the simplicity and the purity of the gospel. And again, because of that, they've grown carnal and just worldly in their um, thinking and even in their approach to ministry. The simple and yet powerful message of the gospel became just maybe too simple for them. And they started using worldly wisdom. Like we gotta, we gotta doctor this up a little bit. And they ended up setting aside their dependency upon God and began to once again trust in themselves, rely upon their own wisdom, the wisdom of this world. And Paul strongly tells them in 1 Corinthians 1, for the word of the cross is foolishness. It is to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He reminds the believers, this message of the cross, this gospel message might sound foolish according to the wisdom of the world. But, he says, but to us, To us who know Jesus, this is everything. Without it, we have nothing. Paul would remind them that none of them came to Jesus because they were smart enough, they were clever enough. They didn't figure out this message on their own. They came to Christ because God's power was working in a very simple and foolish to the world's eyes message. Paul reminded them that the reason that they even came to faith and and that no one came to faith because of Paul's eloquence of speech, Paul's ability to communicate the gospel in a strategic way for them to understand, like that wasn't why they even gave their lives to Jesus. Though Paul was very smart, he was very studious, but Paul simply came as a messenger of a foolish message in the world's eyes. He said in chapter two, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like, that's it. Paul could not and would not take credit for their salvation. From beginning to end, their salvation and their spirituality was solely and totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. 
So essentially, I like to boil things down. Like, what is he really getting at? What's, what's his main focus? I believe Paul's simple message right here to the church of Corinth is, it's not about you. <laughs> it's all about Jesus. He doesn't need you. His plans aren't contingent on you and your obedience. He's not looking for your counsel or your wisdom. Why? Because God's wisdom is completely different from our wisdom. And better, I think of Isaiah 55, 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your, or nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. The Lord's just saying, hey, you and I do something different and I'm better than you. Like I have wisdom, true wisdom. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God in his wisdom has chosen to use a foolish message in the eyes of the world shared by foolish people to bring life to those who are spiritually dead. I love that. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 1, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. So at the end of the day, when the job is done, there would be no confusion that God and God alone would get all of the glory. Like that is the goal. I think of the psalmist as not to us, O Lord, but to your name. Be the glory. That's the gospel message. Again, why? So that no one will boast. And that was what we, what we saw in chapter one. But by his doing in verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Church, this is so simple. Isn't that the beauty of the gospel is that it is simple? That you and I can understand it, respond to it, cherish it. But aren't we the ones who always complicate things? <laughs> this life that we, we live, this church that we attend, this message that we proclaim has always been about Jesus. It's always needed to be about Jesus and it will forever remain all about Jesus. There's no moving beyond him. This is all we have. Listen, the moment you and I take our eyes off of Jesus, we've lost everything and we're in serious trouble. And the church of Corinth has forgotten that truth. They're no longer a Jesus church. They've become a self-focused church. And that brings us to our study this morning in verse one of chapter three. He says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Now, I want you to notice in that third word there that Paul calls them brethren. And the reason I find that important is because if you were to sit down and just read through in one sitting, like the book of 1 Corinthians, one, it's kind of depressing a little bit because this church has had so many issues. They struggle in so many areas. And you're like, and, you, and you're kind of left wondering, like, are these people even saved? Like, have they even encountered Jesus, right? But no, no, no. But here Paul starts off by reminding them of their spiritual identity. He considers them believers in Jesus. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's talking to the church here. I think of the last verse we left off on last week in, in chapter two. He says, but we, plural, we have the mind of Christ. We're in this together. So he's, a, he's, he's writing to them as a fellow believer in Jesus, a brother in Jesus. He affirms who they are. Hey guys, your identity is in Jesus. And I'm sure as it's grateful that Paul is for their salvation, that they know the Lord, 
This, though, was the biggest point of contention that Paul had about them. Again, he's not worried about their salvation per se. He's not worried that they, they maybe, are they saved? Are they not? No, no, they are saved. They've, they've, they've had the Holy Spirit. They've been born again. But Paul's problem is that they weren't acting like it. It was as if they were denying their identity of who they really were. And he says, again, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. Paul's grieved over the fact that after all this time, he couldn't have this deep conversation over the things of the Lord with this church. But rather, he had to still address them as infants in Christ. I think the, the King James says babes or babies in Christ. And we're not talking about new converts, new believers who, who just gave their life to the Lord like last week or a few weeks ago. We're talking about men and women who have been saved for years. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit, but they haven't grown up. They haven't matured. It stopped there. They were immature in their faith. And because of their immaturity, their lack of growth, it has caused these believers to, to, to be, as he said, men of flesh. Now, so far in our study, highlighting especially last week in chapter two, Paul has separated people into three categories or classifications. And again, last week we looked at the natural man. And the natural man we know is the unregenerate man. He doesn't know Jesus. He's in total darkness when it comes to all things spiritual. He's not able to see. He's blinded to the things of God. And then in contrast to the natural man, you have the spiritual man. This is the person who's seeking to be led by the Spirit after the Spirit. He's mindful of spiritual things. He's controlled by the Spirit. But here in chapter 3, Paul introduces us to a third type, and that's the fleshly man or men of flesh. And that word that Paul uses here for flesh is sarkikos, and it means carnal or worldly, having the nature of flesh. It characterizes someone who is governed by mere human nature and not by the Spirit of God. They're carnal. And I think throughout scripture, we see pictures of this carnal or this fleshly man, person who's living after their flesh. I think of Mark's gospel and Jesus is talking about the, the parable of the sower and the seed. And he says in Mark 4.18 concerning the seed that was sown amongst the thorns, he says, thorns, he says, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulnesses of rich, or riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So there's this worldliness, if you will. They're concerned for the things of this world. And Jesus says they, that they have desires for other things. There's no fruit in their lives. And so the carnal man can be someone who is just living after the flesh. But it can also be one who lives by the flesh. Now, this is a little bit different. This is someone who is trying to live the Christian life. They're trying to walk the Christian walk, but they're doing so in the power of their own flesh and their own doing. In fact, Paul addressed this to the church of Galatia when he wrote this. Oh, foolish Galatians in Galatians chapter three, who has bewitched you? Those are some strong words. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
And, and, and most of you might know the issue there in Galatia was that the Judaizers came in and they, and they distorted the purity and the message of the gospel to this church. Like, if you really want to be saved, you've got to be circumcised. They've, it was a Jesus plus doctrine. And so they went into this category by trying to please God in the energy of their flesh by circumcision. By circumcision. And so the church in Galatia was carnal. It was carnal in their thinking. It wasn't that they were living necessarily after the flesh or they're seeking the things of this world, but it was that they were seeking to live, seeking to please God in their flesh and by their flesh. Now, this type of individual is very common in the church today. And this person, they're always striving. You might know them, you might be them. They're always trying to force things. They're always trying to make things happen. They never seem relaxed. They're always burdened and weighed down about something. They don't ever seem to be just enjoying their relationship with Jesus. And then even in the ministry, there's always, they're always trying to make things happen, trying to force open doors instead of allowing the Lord to lead them, to guide them to ministry. They're like finagling their way into ministry. Oh, you really need me. I can be helpful here. I can be helpful there. But this carnal people, they, 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 they can live after the flesh, but they can also live by the flesh. And in any one of those, it all boils down to one thing, self. Self is the focus. It all comes down to me. And this is what happens when we take our eyes off of Jesus, when we stop growing, when we stop pursuing Jesus, learning about him. We have nothing but our flesh, our sinful nature, our carnal thinking. We even start judging things according to our wisdom according to worldly standards. We're no longer Christ-centered and others-minded. We're self-centered and me-minded. What's in it for me? How can I be seen? How can I be out there and get the credit? That's what it means to be carnal. He says in verse two, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, in verse three, just the beginning part, for you are still fleshly. Paul's reminding them of, of, of when the time that he was with them. He says, hey, when I was with you years ago, I gave you milk to drink. I didn't give you a steak dinner. <laughs> Why? Because you were young, you were infants. That was expected. You were a newborn believer. That was your season for milk. That was fine. He says, but that was then. And this is now, and he says, you are still only able to drink milk. You haven't grown any teeth. You haven't even, you don't even show a desire for steak. Anyone have a desire for steak? Now you're like, lunchtime. The writer of Hebrews, please take me with you if you're going out to steak. All right, I'll go with you. The writer of Hebrews addressed the same concern in Hebrews chapter five. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. Ooh. You have but you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice, they have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And though the Corinthians were older physically, they never grew up spiritually. And Paul is calling them out and he's saying, guys, what happened? What happened after I left? I mean, I gave you the bottle, I gave you milk, but now you're older. Now you should be craving and desiring something more solid. 
And listen, this is a problem. It's a huge problem. And he says at the, at the very beginning of verse three, he says, for you are still fleshly. That is, you're carnal. You're craving more of the things of the world than you are the things of the spirit. This is a problem. And because you're carnal, it's stunting your growth in Jesus. And I wonder how many Christians today who got saved 5, 10, 15 years ago have never matured at all in their walk with the Lord. They, never, they gave their life to, to the Lord. They're saved, but they never grew in the riches of his word, in the riches of his grace. Let me ask you this morning, have you? Have you grown up in the ways of the Lord? Do you know the word of God more today than the day that you gave your life to the Lord? Do you crave the things of the spirit more today than you did five years ago? Are you sensitive to the things of the spirit more today than last year at this time? Now, there are many of you today that have grown up. You are maturing. And that's, it's an encouragement. I know for Pastor Doug, that's one of his joys he shared with me. This is my joy of being a pastor is watching just the people get it and the light bulb moments and they just continue to look like Jesus in their life. That's sanctification. So work of the Lord. That's a joy. So there are so many of you I can look out today and say, you've, you've grown. But the, the exhortation to you this morning is keep growing. Keep growing. You've, you haven't arrived. And I think you've mentioned, Doug, you mentioned last week, like even in heaven, just, he, he just was teaching that like, we're, I think we're just gonna continue to grow just our knowledge of God and just in wonder of him when we're face to face with him. We're, we don't stop growing. There's a desire, there needs to be a desire there. So some of you, you are doing that, so keep on. But sadly, it isn't for everyone. Not everyone's doing that. Not everyone's growing. Pastor Doug once said, if most men and women grew physically at the same rate they grow spiritually, many of them would spend their whole lives in playpens sucking on bottles. <laughs> Some of you are like, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> First service laughed. You, half of you laughed. I didn't laugh when I read it this week. I was like, oh man, like, is that where I'm still at? Am I still looking at a playpen sucking on a bottle? Like, have I matured? But it's convicting, but it is sad when believers don't grow because you know why? That's God's heart for you. Do you, know, do you understand that? He desires to see you grow, to be more like Jesus. That's the process of sanctification that he seeks to do by the power of his spirit. I think of Romans 8 tells us that God's desires to conform you into the image of his son. That's his heart, to make us more like Jesus. And who was Jesus? What was Jesus like? I think of Paul writing to the church of, in Philippi and in, in, to the Philippians in ch chapter two, verse six, he says, concerning Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking a form of a bondservant and, make, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was filled with humility, marked his character. Others minded marked his character. And this is, again is what the Lord desires to do in each and every one of us, that we would model after Jesus, that we would grow to become like Jesus in all we say, in all we do. 
that we would reflect him to the world around us. But the church in Corinth was not there yet. Instead of patterning their lives after Jesus and resembling him, they looked more like the world. Look at the rest of verse three. He says, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Paul, once again, he calls them on the carpet. Because you haven't grown at all in your relationship with Jesus, you're living now according to your flesh. He says, look at the results. There's jealousy among you in the church. You're, you're jealous of each other. And maybe some of, some of them were jealous of each other's gifts. Like, wow, man, I really wish I could be like Josh and be a worship leader and kind of like be on stage every Sunday. And like others were like, man, I wish I could be like Pastor Doug and just be preaching all this, this, these amazing sermons. And they're jealous. And he says, not only are you jealous of one another, there's strife. And strife is the fruit, the result of jealousy. The definition of strife is it conveys the idea of self-centered rivalry and contentiousness and is an expression of enmity with bitter conflict or dissension. It has no place even for simple tolerance, much less for humility or love. There's no place for humility and love with strife. And this is what's happening in the church of Corinth. Now, there's a story about two shopkeepers. They were bitter rivals. Their stores were directly across the street from each other, and they would spend each day keeping track of each other's businesses. If one got a customer and made a sale, he would smile and just triumph at, at, over his rival. And so one night, an angel appeared to one of the shopkeepers in a dream and said, I will give you anything you ask. But whatever you receive, your competitor will receive twice as much. Would you be rich? Oh, you could be very rich, but he will be twice as wealthy as you. Do you wish to live a long and healthy life? Oh, you can. But his life will be longer and healthier than yours. So what is your desire, shopkeeper? The man frowned thought for a moment, and then he said, here is my request. Strike me blind in one eye. <laughs> I don't know if it's the sleep that you guys got more of than the nine o'clock service, but you guys definitely connected, or maybe that was just a, <laughs> I don't know, but if you didn't get it, come ask me after the service. <laughs> I laughed when I read it today, or this week. James 3.16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder and every evil thing. Paul says, you guys are jealous of one another. There's, there's growing bitterness toward one another in the church. And he says, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? In other words, are you not living your life in a way that resembles the world? And it's a rhetorical question. They were walking like mere men, like natural men like men who are unregenerate, unsaved. These believers, they were, they were born anew by the Holy Spirit. They were living, though, as if the Holy Spirit was a foreign concept to them. And Paul continues to address their carnality in verse 4. It says, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Again, Paul is continuing to hammer the point to these believers that their flesh is just having a heyday. Their flesh is getting the better of them and they're acting like they're unsaved. They're acting as if they don't have the mind of Christ that we know they do. And right now it's coming out in, in division in the church. The church is divided because of their carnality. And, and let me just say this this morning. This is a danger for all of us. 
as you and I take inventory of our lives, we take spiritual temperature reading of our lives, we must ask the question, are we, am I a carnal Christian? Now you might say, no, 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 no way, not me. I'm not a carnal Christian. Like I don't watch R-rated movies, right? Like I don't, I don't do, I stay away from certain sins. No, no, listen, I'm not talking about, you know, are you carnal in the sense of you come here on Sunday, kind of play the part of a hypocrite, and then Monday through Saturday, you just live your life for the flesh. No, I'm not talking about that necessarily. But are we carnal in our thinking? Have we adopted worldly wisdom, worldly values, even when it comes to the church and to ministry in the church? Paul, once again, he brings up this devastating division in the church. He's already addressed this in chapter one. But carnal thinking can come in all shapes and sizes. And for this church, it had personality clubs, fan clubs, pastor clubs, if there can ever be a thing. They were so carnal that they had their favorite pastor that they preferred over the other pastors. And it's clearly this serious issue because this is the second time that Paul references this issue in less than three chapters. He says again, I'm going to read this out of the New Living in verse 4. When one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like people in the world? He's saying, you guys sound just like the world in your comparison of this pastor over this pastor. Well, I love Paul. He's so like intelligent. He gives so deep, you know, messages. And it's just, I feel like I just grow in the knowledge of God every time he speaks. Well, I love Apollos. He keeps me awake every time that he preaches. Like he's just, he, he's just gifted orator, whatever. But Paul, he goes on to say, what is Apollos in verse five? What is Paul? He says, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. The point of Paul's question is to help these believers. Hey guys, stop looking at me altogether. Stop looking at Apollos. We're nothing. We're mere servants of Christ. We're instruments in the hands of God. Verse six, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You're God's building. Paul says, there are different roles that many people play in the kingdom of God, in the body of Christ. But at the end of the day, there is no value in an instrument if it doesn't have a player. There is no value in a tool, no matter how shiny and how powerful that tool is, if it doesn't have a master craftsman. It's God who gives, causes the growth. You see, Paul and Apollos were simply just humble branches. I think of, of John 15. I've, every time Tim and I, I feel like we talk, we always, we're always coming back to John 15, abiding in the vine. Humble branches, they were only productive when they abided in the vine. Their closeness to Jesus is the only good that ever came out of their ministry. And that's the only good that's ever gonna come out of our ministry is if we're close to Jesus. And we're allowing him to fill us and him to empower us. But when we're thinking with carnal, fleshly wisdom, when we've been hanging out more with the world than with Jesus, we start to think like the world. And how does the world think? 
You know, I think church growth methods, they, they have a lot of church growth books out there for pastors to read. Hey, you want to grow your church and make it successful and as big as possible? Well, what they would tell you is when you start the church, well, you want to have, you want to have the most charismatic big voice personality that ever existed, that's funny, that's able to just keep a crowd and all of those things. That's what they would, that's what they would tell you. That's how you would grow a church. And I think I was sharing with the first service, in our, in our Calvary Chapel movement, we had one of the, at the time, one of the largest churches in America in Florida. It was like over 20,000 people. And the senior pastor at the time, he was the funniest, most charismatic Bible teacher that I, uh, probably one that I've ever sat like, and listen to, just really gifted communicator. And the Lord did use him over the years, but there was a problem. He didn't have any character. He was living a double life, and that former pastor is remembered no more, except for these types of stories. You see, it doesn't matter how gifted you are. It's the Spirit of God working in you. It's that closeness, that abiding to Jesus. Pastor Doug has given us as staff and as pastors and elders like this love for A.W. Tozer or Warren Wearsby. And from what I've been told, I've watched a little bit of Warren Wearsby on YouTube, but what, from what I've been told about these two guys is they were not that amazing to listen to. They were a little on the boring side, the dry side. But I'll tell you what, God used them. God used them, especially even in the writings, man. Today, we're st we still read their books and it's like it has this prophetic message to our culture. And if I can be honest this morning, over the years, I too have had to grow in this issue of fan clubs that I've had. If I could build the best church, you know, I would say, well, we need, you know, like a Matt Chandler or a Tim Chaddock, someone who's very knowledgeable and gifted communicator and easy to listen to, and soft on the eyes or whatever, you know, like... I would recruit Phil Wickham, one of my favorite worship leaders, to be the worship pastor of the church. And Josh, too. You know, I would have him, for sure. <laughs> you kind of sound like Phil sometimes. Like, I would know how to build a church according to worldly wisdom, according to carnal thinking. Why is that worldly, you might ask? Why is that carnal? Because I'm putting too much emphasis on man and not God. I'm starting to look at man's qualification. Well, how funny are they? How, like, how charismatic are they? Can they work a crowd? Like, you're looking at that more than the spirit of God who's residing in them. Like, how close to Jesus are they? That should probably be a good question if you're looking for a pastor. I think if God's word to the prophet Samuel, you know, in 1 Samuel, um, Saul has run its cor his course and he's ended badly. But so now it's time for a new king of Israel, right? And you guys probably know the story. They go to the house of Jesse and Eliab walks in. He's like the oldest. And he's tall, he's dark, he's handsome. And Samuel, prophet of God, like God's, God's servant says, this is it. He's the one, he looks like a king, smells like a king, talks like a king, acts like a king, whatever. Like he just saw a king in Eliab. And you know what God said? Uh-uh. No, 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 Samuel, shame on you. You're looking at the outward. But I look at the heart. Again, it goes back to our wisdom versus God's wisdom. Our ways aren't his ways. Our thinking isn't his thinking. We need to get on his plan, not him on our plan. Verse six again, I planted. Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Now, when it comes to farming and farming metaphors, I don't know too much about it. And you might probably, like, I get that. I look at you and I understand you've probably not spent a day in the farm, you know, 
Kevin, he could probably come up here and talk to you about farming and the process of cattle and, you know, seeds and, you know, all of that. Sorry, but I'm going to run with what I kind of see in this text here, okay? You have a planter. <laughs> hey, you have someone who comes along a while later and simply cares for what's been done. There's different jobs, different callings in the body of Christ, but it's really God who does anything of value. I think this, of the psalmist who had said, unless the Lord builds the house, they who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord does it. Well, how I view the planter versus the waterer, if that's even a word, a waterer, is that the one who plants actually to me does a lot of hard work. In order to plant, you've got to find the field You've got to find the piece of property. Once you find it, you've got to purchase it. You finally get out there and you inspect the soil. Nowadays, you've got to like call the county and have them inspect the soil, you know, all of that. It's just a process, but you till the soil, you're turning, you're turning dirt. You're moving a lot of dirt at first. And this is dirty work, man. You're getting your hands dirty. This isn't exactly the fun part of, of planting, but you're up super early. You're trying to beat the heat. You've poured hours upon hours into preparation of the soil and then the day finally comes and you get to lay the seed down. The moment you've been waiting for and preparing so hard for is finally here. Weeks and months of preparation have gone into this, finally able to lay the seed. And after the, the planter has completed his work, he's done. The task has been accomplished. He's finished the assignment. And now someone comes along to water what's already been planted. Now, I don't want to diminish water, especially in the Northwest. We, clearly, it's green because we get a lot of water. Um, because without water, we know nothing will grow. But for the waterer, the soil's already been tilled. The, a lot of the hard work has been done. And now it's time just for the water. To water what's already been planted. And obviously, we need the power of the sun to make anything grow. But can I be honest this morning? This is how I view our church and our pastor in this time of transition. Pastor Doug has been the planter. He has toiled the ground. Him and Janet have tirelessly nurtured the soil that is Calvary Chapel Southeast. He's labored, they've labored, they've labored for 30 years and have planted many seeds. Pastor Doug has done the hard work but for CCSE, he's coming to the end of that assignment of planting. But here is what is important that I don't want you to miss this morning. The ministry of Calvary Chapel has never been about the one who planted. Nor should it ever be about the one who comes along to water it. The ministry, if it doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit and Jesus being the center, this work is in vain. No matter how eloquent a pastor could be, no matter how gifted a worship leader may be, if you're here this morning and you're only here because Pastor Doug, you know, is an amazing teacher and that's it, and you were really disappointed when you walked into church today and saw that I was teaching, like, and you're like, come July 1st, I'm out of here, or you're here today because you found out a couple of months ago that there's going to be a younger pastor who's more my style taking over, listen, you both have missed the point of it all. And all I can say, if that's, that's our mentality, God help us. That is carnal, fleshly, worldly thinking 
Again, carnality can come in all shapes and sizes. Being worldly is much deeper than just bad, like fleshly habits. It's a heart condition. And all I can say is God spare us from either one of those mentalities. God help us to keep our eyes on you and you alone. And here's my prayer for our church. Lord, keep this church all about Jesus all about Jesus. No man, no program, no denomination, but simply Jesus. Simply Jesus. I want to close with this quote from Robert Murray McShane. He was a minister in Scotland in the 1800s. He was actually just a couple months shy of his 30th birthday before he passed away due to an illness, but he made a a huge spiritual impact on Scotland that continues to this day. He said this, It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likenesses to Jesus. A man cannot be a faithful minister until he preaches Christ for Christ's sake, until he gives up striving to attract people to himself and seeks only to attract them to Christ. Lord, help us as a church and may this church, may even this pulpit forever remain only about you. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.